psychologist, Dr. Rick Hansen, and his main body of work is about how as humans, you know, we're wired to look for threats. We have a negativity bias. We can survive and protect ourselves. So we don't spend as much time on thinking about the good things in our life, the simple and profound good things. We don't stop to acknowledge our accomplishments and savor, you know, the small moments of joy. So I also try to savor and name, you know, things that bring me joy or really, you know, savor it, really take it in in a mindful way, let it sink in into my body, my mind. I've gone and visited California like a few years back and I was staying there for a long weekend and you know, I kept saying to myself, oh, I, I wish I could stay here longer. I'm not going to have time, you know, to see the places I want to see and meet everybody I want to see. And so when I realized that, I you know, shifted my mindset and decided to be here now in that moment, you know, in the moments on that trip and really take in all the good that I was experiencing to really be present for them. And that completely shifted, you know, the way I was viewing the trip. And when I came back home, I didn't have any regrets about the trip. So I think really taking those moments to savor anything good that's happening and take that in deeply is important. Hello, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, this is Nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Garg Show. My mission is to help people get in touch with their emotions and feelings, connect to themselves and being a source of healing. My job on this show is to invite the world-class experts to deconstruct the practices, routines and habits to help you live a fulfilled and abundant life. This episode is brought to you by my own Friday newsletter. Every Friday, I share an exclusive email to the newsletter subscribers, which mentions what I am learning, recent podcast updates, things I'm experimenting with, books I'm reading, and much, much more. You can find the newsletter link at https colon slash slash nishantgarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me. And today's guest is Nina Paul. Nina is a mindfulness instructor for adults and teens. She has taught workshops in Virginia, led courses for teens in the Fairfax County school system, and she is a lecturer of mindfulness at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. She works with college students, staff, and faculty to incorporate fundamentals of mindfulness into their everyday lives. Nina has received training in mindfulness through UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center, Mindful Schools, the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program, and the National Institute for the Clinical Application of Behavioral Medicine. In this episode, Nina discusses how she was introduced to mindfulness practices about a therapy experience, different healing modalities, the work of emotional resilience, and the most important thing she talks about is the emotional freedom tapping technique, also known as EFT. And without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Nina. Nina, welcome to the show. Thank you. 
Thank you for supporting this podcast since day one. I've known you since episode one and we have been trying to get this podcast since then. So I'm glad we are finally having this conversation after almost 15 months. Yeah, me too. Oh, me too. So Nina, if somebody asks you, what do you do? What is your short answer look like usually? So I'm a meditation teacher and I teach the fundamental practices of mindfulness for stress reduction. In the past couple of years, I've added in some more stress reduction practices like tapping, also known as EFT, emotional freedom technique, and some other stress reduction practices that complement mindfulness. And this is all to become more emotionally resilient, to have a new way to deal with the stress in your life and become stronger and resilient as a result of it. We will get into mindfulness and its stress reduction in a while. And before that, I want to go back in 1994, between the period of 1994 and 1997, you were working as a Montessori teacher, educating children on being aware of their bodies to understand themselves. Could you elaborate on that experience of yourself? Yeah. So when I was in college, I majored in computer science and I really wasn't happy with my major. It wasn't the best fit for me. So after graduating from college, I worked for a few years in the field and decided to change careers, you know, to get into psychology or sociology or something related to those fields. I had a passion for psychology. And so I ended up changing careers. I grew up in Delaware. I had moved to California. And once I got to California, I decided to change careers. So I was selling software part-time and going back to school for my psychology, my master's in psychology. And I got a part-time job as a Montessori teaching assistant. So I fell in love with the teaching method and I think it was really a precursor to mindfulness for me because the way you teach in the Montessori field with children is a very sensorial experience, very experiential, and uh, teaching children to learn through their senses versus for achievement and for goals. And so I just found it to be so beautiful and my time spent teaching children in that method, the Montessori method, is a time I look back on and I really treasure. What are the practices in Montessori method? So there's a set curriculum developed by Dr. Maria Montessori back in the early uh, 1900s. She was a woman ahead of her time, an MD. And so the curriculum entails teaching children, you know, basic skills through the apparatus that's provided. And so it's a set of things that look like games that children play with that, again, have them 
activate their all of their senses, seeing, sight, touching, especially, hearing, feeling into their bodies. And then there's a practical life aspect to teaching where you teach them just basic life skills, you know, to take a broom and a dustpan after spilling something, you know, and clean up after themselves or to wash some dishes, you know, sweep the floor, water flowers and plants. So I just, again, I just found it to be such a beautiful curriculum for for children at that young age. What was the age bracket after? It was two to five, ages two to five. Two to five, and you were teaching those practices. That is incredible. Yeah, yeah. And I was out in California, and so, you know, we were, it's outdoor living, so we were outside a lot with the children. It was just beautiful. How do you feel when you work with children now or when you worked with children in the past? You know, I feel like I was meant to work with children, so it was a real sort of coming home kind of experience. And I think that I've always had an affection towards children for some reason. And so, you know, I I taught Montessori up until the time I had my own children. So it was also a nice learning experience, (laughs) you know, dealing with toddlers and their personalities and preschoolers before having your own children is I, I'd highly recommend it. <laughs> so that was really helpful. While growing up, did you have all these life practices or emotional intelligence practices in your childhood? No, I, I had a pretty tough childhood. So I was born in India and then my family immigrated to England, actually. And it was a tough childhood because I was. Initially, I was left with my grandmother when I was an infant, so my parents could settle and find a home in England until I joined them. And so there was some early separation in my infancy years that was, you know, it was pretty rough to be separated from your parents at such a young age. And then when I was reunited with my parents in England, their situation was all about economic survival. So they were, you know, extremely hard workers trying to make a better life. So there was, these were very tough times because my parents were constantly working. They were trying to make a better life as immigrants for themselves and their family. And so I was left with babysitters. And it was, you know, it was a difficult time for a kid to be, you know, in a developmental stage where you need a lot of consistency. And I didn't really have that. So it was a sad time in my life. Things got a lot better when my dad ended up, we ended up moving to Delaware when I was about four years old. And that's when life started to get more stable and parents were more fine, getting more financially grounded. Um, so things start getting, started getting a lot better. But I would say in my you know, early years from infancy till about you know, six, 
seven years old. It was, it was a time of insecurity for me. How did you raise your own children and what was your parenting style? Well, one of the things that I had talked, you know, with my partner, with my husband about is I, I really wanted to be home with them in their early years, especially because of my situation. So that was a real gift for me that I got to be home with them. Also, what was very clear to me that I was very privileged that I didn't have the level of economic sort of survival needs that my parents did. You know, I didn't have that stress. I had stress, but not that kind of stress. And, you know, I will say that I believe my children had more consistency and stability in their early years, for sure. When you say stability, what kind of stability are you talking about? Is it emotional stability, emotional, mental? Yeah, both. I mean, coming home to, you know, just like having the same caregiver day in and day out, which would be me and my husband, you know, having someone at home that pretty much devoted to their needs without having to worry about work. And then I would also say that I certainly am an imperfect mother, but I also felt like by the time I had my children, I had done some significant emotional work uh, on myself. And so was in a place where I could really be, could offer them my adult self. <laughs> That's what I would say, my <laughs> adult self, knowing how and what to do with small children, how significant their, this period of development is for them and how significant the impact you have on them, especially in those early years as a parent. If you are able to, could you describe the emotional work you did and how did you do it? So the emotional work I did was, you know, I had a constant feeling of insecurity self-criticism, you know, throughout my childhood and up through high school and then even even into my college years. And, and, you know, I think that came from that. I think that came from those early years, you know, not getting what I needed. And so after I graduated from college and started working, I got really lucky because I got into therapy pretty young. And I think that started the rebuilding process of my internal, you know, sense of self. How old were you when you entered into therapy? I was 22, 22, 23. What kind of therapy was that? So at the place of employment where I was working, they actually had, you know, you had access to a psychologist and employees were encouraged to reach out. And one of the managers I worked for, you know, she was telling me about it and she was talking in a way about her own, you know, childhood and her own life. And I was astonished. She was being, you know, very open about her 
psychological life and her upbringing and how it affected her. And, and she, I, I, I was just astonished that somebody was talking to me in such an honest way about themselves. So we started talking more and she said, I am seeing a counselor in this program here. I did. So after that, I decided to try it out for myself. So I said, I would say it was a psychologist. Yeah. We just started talking about my childhood and about my feelings of insecurity and inferiority and how I wanted to change that. After you went into therapy, what changes or breakthroughs did you observe in your own self? So I would say that, you know, that first foray into therapy didn't last long, but I think it kind of set the stage for me that this is a resource that I can use and I, you know, want to explore it more deeply. So the second time I got into therapy when I was actually in California, I was so I was studying psychology at you know at the same time looking for a therapist at the same time being in northern california which is like the best place to be <laughs> in the 90s for anything you know new age spiritual therapy wise and so I did a little shopping around this time when I was looking for a therapist and I found a very strong woman figure you know who became my therapist. And we did a lot of work around healing, you know, by my talking about my childhood and different issues that had come up. And then just through the process of talking with her, I think it started to heal me. And she was also a role model figure for me as a strong, independent, you know, Western woman. And so I mod- I think I modeled a lot of how I wanted to be and how I decided to be from that. And I feel very blessed to have found someone like that at that right moment in my life. What qualities did she have that you found your role model? Well, for one thing, we shared early childhood trauma because she had lost her mother at a very young age. And and then subsequently, she also lost her father. So I think from the get-go, she had a very deep experiential understanding of loss. And I think that was initially a big part of our bond. And, and she was very smart and well-trained in, in psychology. And so other you know aspects of her personality that i decided to model were just you know being comfortable in who she was learning to she would speak up for her own needs she felt she was confident internally and just she just taught me a lot you know about how to be in the world i could ask her anything and also she had really good values so this is a very trustworthy person. And I also agreed with her values and I liked the way she did things. So that's, that's also too, why it was the right fit. And I, you know, I knew I could sort of role model her. What advice would you give to someone who 
may be looking for a therapist and not share how to shop around? So in today's world, I I know that there are counseling services at the universities and they can, you know, match you to a therapist. It's a very common thing to do today. I don't think it has any stigma attached to it. So first of all, I recommend everybody get into therapy if you want to learn more about yourself and grow and heal in a way that, you know, is is different than any other way of healing. And I would just say, you know, try different therapists out. And if the chemistry is not there, the trust isn't there, you'll know. I mean, you will know right away. And so just not to give up and keep trying. And also, also therapists today have different specialties. So depending on what you're looking for, you can find a therapist, you know, that offers certain types of therapy that meet what you're looking for, what you need help with. Nina, while doing the preparation for this interview, I learned that you were a Montessori teacher between the period of 1994 and 1997, as we have discussed. Mm -hmm. And then in 2007, you were working as a teacher again. So what happened between 1997 and 2007? I could not find. <laughs> so in 1998, I had my first child. And so my daughter <laughs> was born. And, and then I had my second child in 2000. So I have two daughters. And I wasn't working at that time. I was home, you know, raising them. Thank you for explaining. Yeah. At what point in your life did you enter into mindfulness space? I got into mindfulness in the mid-90s. I This is while I was living in California, and I, had, I was struggling with anxiety. So anxiety was a constant uh, theme in my life. And so I uh, had heard about meditation. It was funny because... My anxiety at one point started to worsen as I was changing careers and, you know, thinking about what I wanted to do for a living. And I had gone to my general practitioner, my doctor, just describing to her how bad, you know, my anxiety was getting you know, to the point where I was having panic attacks. And she actually suggested to take an MBSR course, mindfulness-based stress reduction. And so that's what I did. And I, I was hooked because it taught me a different way of being in the world. It taught me how to work with my stressful thoughts, my stressful emotions, how to become kinder and gentler with myself. And you know, it was just a life-changing experience as well as techniques to actually feel calmer and more present. What was the underlying cause of your anxiety and stress? Was there any childhood connection? Well, the trigger when I had moved to California was I had made all these life changes all at once. So I had changed, I was, you know, changing my career. I had moved from Delaware to California, so 3,000 miles away from 
family and friends. I had met my husband out there a year, a year after I met him, we got married. And then I quit my job. And then we bought a house. So it was this, you know, uh, combination of major life changes all at once, and then not having like my normal support system. I think that triggered that level of anxiety. For sure. Are you saying that we should not do so many things at once? <laughs> I highly recommend you don't. <laughs> no, definitely not. One at a time. And I want to touch upon healing modalities. You have been in therapy for a while. So what different healing modalities have you tried or practiced on your own? In addition to mindfulness, which I, I stuck with, I've done yoga, and that was very healing as well. I tried hypnotherapy, but that didn't really stick for me. And then more recently, in the last three years, I've become trained in EFT, which is also known as tapping, emotional freedom technique. And what I find with tapping, it's a wonderful complement to my meditation practice because it's tapping helps reduce your stress response pretty quickly. So it's great for those times when you're really freaked out or your emotions are really in you know, intense, you're really stressed, you're scared, you're fearful, or, you know, really angry, and you're stuck, you know, you just can't get out from under the grips of that kind of strong, intense stress. And so with tapping, it's considered a somatic therapy, a body based therapy, you actually start tapping on your acupuncture points which are stress relieving while talking about your problem at the same time, adding in acceptance statements and acceptance of yourself, of your feelings. And it's this combination that works together to more rapidly reduce the intensity of difficult emotions can feel, you know, your stress response goes way down and, after doing a few rounds of tapping, you can think more clearly because you're in a calmer state. And so it really can take the edge off intense anxiety or intense stress. How do we practice emotional freedom tapping technique? I can give you an example. So say you have a problem, you know, that you're worried, you're worried about it. You start by saying a few setup statements like, even though I'm worried about blank, I deeply and completely accept myself. Or even though I'm really stressed about this, I choose to trust it's safe to relax. Or, you know, even though I'm really worried about the outcome of blank and I'm not in control of it. It's safe to relax. So those are examples of setup statements and you're tapping while you're saying those statements. So that's the first part. Tapping where? On your on your karate chop point, which is the side of your hand, like you know, underneath your pinky on the your pinky on the side of your hand. You take your other hand, the four fingers 
of your, say you're using your right hand to tap. So you take your right hand, the four fingers, and tap on the side of the hand of the left hand, just underneath the pinky finger. And you, that's when you say those setup statements. And then you move to the other points, which are just real briefly. So we've got the, the top of the head and you've got the facial points, eyebrows, side of the eye, under the eyes, under the nose, under the mouth. And then you have a collarbone point and an underarm point. So that's a basic tapping recipe there. And then after you use the setup statements, you go through the other points while venting about your stress in a way that you're really getting in touch with the intense feelings. And you just start venting, you know, what your feelings are, what you feel like you're, if you were talking to a friend, you, then you, you'll notice that you can start to get more specific and more precise and pinpoint what exactly is triggering you so much. You know, what is it about this stressor that's really got you upset and worried? And that's when you really hit gold because then you start tapping on that. And then once you are, you kind of rate your stress level at the beginning, you know, from one to 10, how stressed, how freaked out am I? And then once you get to, like below a three, three or below level, you'll notice you feel much more clear-headed in in your body. Your stress response has calmed down. And you can think about that same worry, that same problem, and you just don't feel as stressed about it. You don't feel as triggered. And you can think more clearly and you know, that's just a very simple example. You should close out a tapping session with positive statements. And if it's an issue that doesn't feel completely resolved after one tapping session, then you just would do more tapping rounds, more tapping sessions. And I initially, I initially tried it out for severe anxiety I was getting with around public speaking events, speaking in front of large groups was something that would cause me a lot of anxiety. So I started to use tapping very specifically for that issue. And I I, I was amazed at how well it helped me. And And I've seen it with my clients. I've seen it work with all kinds of issues and fears that people have. Did you practice tapping right before your speaking gig or few days or few hours before? I actually started 10 days before because I wanted to make sure that, you know, I had it down. And so, yeah, yeah, I started tapping. Now, if you have something stressful coming up, I would recommend start at least a week before. And if you have something stressful on the spot, acute or that you're just blindsided by, tapping also works for that. That's why I love tapping because it's also very forgiving practice. You you could just say something, you know, just suddenly happened and you find yourself in a spot where you're feeling, you know, you're in fight flight mood, you're very stressed. 
you can just tap. I mean, you can just tap on your acupuncture points, not even saying anything. And that should reduce the anxiety in your body a little bit. And if you wanted to just start venting about what's, you know, really got you stressed, then you could just start saying those things and it should help calm down your stress response. It does help. And now I want to ask you about your meditation practice. Could you describe about your meditation practice now? Yeah, I've had quite a journey with my mindfulness meditation practice. So when I was, you know, in my mid-20s and I took that mindfulness-based stress reduction class, I, you know, initially learned mindfulness through Dr. John Kabat-Zinn's program, MBSR. And then as I continued exploring and reading, I added in loving kindness meditation. And when I decided to teach meditation back in 2012, I got trained through UCLA and mindful schools and started bringing in some of those techniques. And about two, three years ago, I decided to further my training and get back into, you know, MBSR. So I'm currently in a training to become certified as an MBSR teacher. And so I do, I do the practices that are a part of MBSR. So I'll start with a body scan in the morning and a loving kindness meditation or an intention setting meditation. I like to do some mindful yoga in the afternoon. And then in the evening before bedtime, I, I like to do a body scan again. And I typically do loving kindness. So those, I would say those are my three go-to meditations that I practice regularly. Mindful yoga, body scan, loving kindness. And inherent in that is mindfulness of the breath. How much time do you spend in your meditation every day? Well, so I try to do a 30-minute body scan every day. That's kind of what I've committed to and dedicated myself to because the body scan is fundamental in MBSR. And I think it's fundamental to me in terms of feeling, you know, like I handle stress better. And then with the yoga and mindful breathing or loving kindness meditation. It's usually not more than 10, 15 minutes a day. You mentioned that you manage your stress well. Now, what is your relationship with stress? My relationship with stress is completely different. I mean, I just don't get as reactive day-to-day, you know, with day-to-day things. I and and just so you know, my par- my kids are not teenagers anymore, so that helps. <laughs> <laughs> How old are they? They're twenty three and twenty one. So I just I feel like I have this you know baseline foundation you know in my body in my mind now after years of meditation practice where it kicks in and I just don't get as stress reactive as I used to. And if I do, I know what to do. You know, I know how to get my mind and body in a better state. And so I, so I can recover 
more quickly is what I would say. It's not that I don't get stressed anymore. I don't get anxious or fearful or down. It's just, I can recover more quickly because I know what to do and I know how to get myself out of that state. And I think what, what I learned, you know, as a young adult, you know, in my mid twenties, 26 to, you know, 26 to the age of the ages of 30 in that really intense time, what I learned was I had hit rock bottom. You know, I was emotionally just so out of control, I felt. And, you know, I had made the commitment to become more emotionally resilient. And so I feel like in some ways, you know, I've achieved that, but that's not like a permanent thing that remains to be seen. (laughs) (laughs) But that was my, that was my, you know, that was my goal in life. That that's what I wanted more than anything. You are also an emotional resilience coach. So how do you help people? I help people through the practices of mindfulness through identifying their stressors identifying how they think about their stress, what they're saying to themselves. I also bring in practices from positive psychology. So there's a theory, there's some theories in positive psychology around optimistic versus pessimistic thinking developed by Dr. Martin Seligman, who's the UPenn professor and founder, co-founder of positive psychology. And I think another main practice and set of skills that I learned was to change my thinking style to be more resilient. You know, I was completely unaware that I had a thinking style that was contributing to my anxiety and low-key depression and insecurity. And so I also teach resilient thinking, a resilient thinking style along with, you know, identifying stressors, becoming aware of your stressors, and then moving into goals and, you know, helping people develop mind-body practices that are sustainable for them, that are going to work for them. Yes, there are so many practices in the toolbox. Some practices are not going to work for everybody because each individual is different. Right. Yeah. Nina, you are also a lecturer of mindfulness at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. So what does a lecturer of mindfulness do? So I teach meditation. Uh, I teach semester-long courses in meditation. And what I love about that is the freedom I have to design the course you know, obviously there are um, some standards you have to follow, but design the course in a way that I want to design it. And so it's primarily mindfulness technique and stress physiology, learning about stress physiology, mindfulness techniques, goals, tapping, and other. there are some other stress reduction techniques. And What I love about getting to have that time with students, you know, it's 15 weeks 
is that they get to learn the practices and apply them to their stress, you know, that's coming up right there in that moment or in that week or in that semester. And they get to practice repeatedly because it's, you know, it's a 15-week course. Could you recommend some resources in terms of books, blogs, or online resources to manage our stress and live more emotionally resilient and a calm, better life? Yeah, so I would say for, in terms of mindfulness, I would recommend any books written by John Kabat-Zinn, who developed MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. He's written you know, quite a few books, Mindfulness for Beginners, Full Catastrophe Living, which is a book I highly recommend. It's very appropriate for anybody who's really, really struggling with a health issue or something pretty majorly stressful in their life. That book, I use that book as a Bible, <laughs> Full Catastrophe Living. So Full Catastrophe Living, Mindfulness for Beginners by John Kabat-Zinn. I also highly recommend Sharon Salzberg. She, I think, was one of the first pioneers to bring loving kindness meditation to the West. And uh, she's written a book called Loving Kindness, Real Happiness. So those are my, my favorites. Also, Jack Cornfield. I think the specific practice that he brings is in the world of mindfulness is, is the practice of forgiveness. And so forgiveness, I've used his practices to help me with forgiveness. So those are my top three authors, I would say, in the mindfulness sphere. In EFT tapping, I would recommend any books by Dawson Church and EFTUniverse.com. That's where I received my training. It has a lot of resources there. Other resources besides mindfulness? I would say building, you know, a resilient thinking style, like looking at your, taking a hard look at your thinking style and how you talk to yourself when you're under stress. You know, do you view stress as threatening or as a challenge? Do you feel capable as someone who is capable of handling stress? You know, do you feel like your stress is killing you? So these are very important questions to explore and ask yourself and in order to, and have effects on health and long-term and short-term. So, so books in that realm, I would say learned optimism by Dr. Martin Seligman, The Upside of Stress by Dr. Kelly McGonigal. And that book goes into the research about learning to view stress as challenging versus threatening and how that you know, helps your, your stress response system. The other thing that I do that I think everybody should do is journal. So and, and your journaling doesn't have to be 
very involved. You know, if you like to write and you like to journal and you like to reflect, that's great. But if you don't, I would recommend just having a worry journal and every day or every couple of days, you know, just jotting down what your main worries are. And you'd be surprised how much that can take the burden off, you know, and it frees up mental space just to jot it down on paper. Even if the worry isn't resolved or you don't have the answers right now, but by writing it out, that's, that's very healing. And writing about worries will not take much time. Maybe even exactly. 60 seconds. Right. right. Three bullets, right? <laughs> exactly. When and, he... and, and also gratitude. You've got me really excited now. <laughs> gratitude. So gratitude is, you know, a simple practice. Most of us already do it, but it's always astounding to me learning about the research behind the effectness, effectiveness of gratitude for our well-being. It's it's so effective, you know, the power of expressing gratitude, jotting down three things that went well or in your day or sending out gratitude to somebody in your life you're very grateful for. And that also doesn't take much time. And savoring, savoring joyful moments, savoring your accomplishments. There's a wonderful psychologist, Dr. Rick Hansen, and his main body of work is about how as humans, you know, we're wired to look for threats. We have a negativity bias. We can survive and protect ourselves. So we don't spend as much time on thinking about the good things in our life, the simple and profound good things. We don't stop to acknowledge our accomplishments and savor, you know, the small moments of joy. So I also try to savor and name, you know, things that bring me joy or really, you know, savor it, really take it in in a mindful way, let it sink in into my body, my mind. I've gone and visited California like a few years back and I was staying there for a long weekend. And, you know, I kept saying to myself, oh, I, I wish I could stay here longer. I'm not going to have time, you know, to see the places I want to see and meet everybody I want to see. And so when I realized that, I, you know, shifted my mindset and decided to be here now in that moment, you know, in the moments on that trip and really take in all the good that I was experiencing to really be present for them. And that completely shifted, you know, the way I was viewing the trip. And when I came back home, I didn't have any regrets about the trip. So I think really taking those moments to savor anything good that's happening and take that in deeply is important. All these practices are simple and effective, but requires consistency. The practice of gratitude, worry journal or positive journal on meditation, these are basic practices. And as you mentioned, the small, I'm going to paraphrase, small things are beautiful in life. The whole concept of big is beautiful may not work all the time. Sometimes letting go of that idea of we have to do big things in life always. Sometimes relax, taking it easy, 
enjoying life, right? Absolutely. And that could be as simple as, you know, your first sip of coffee in the morning, you know, savoring that, just enjoying that moment, savoring the taste of the coffee, the smell, just looking outside. Maybe you're seeing the sun shining or the leaves on the trees, colorful flowers, just stopping and pausing and taking those small moments of joy goes a long way towards stress reduction and happiness. Thank you, Nina, for explaining all these great practices. Is there anything you would like to explore that we have not touched upon? I don't think so, Nishant. What do you think? It seems to me a good place to wrap up our conversation. I feel that way too. I feel complete. Where would you like our listeners to find you? So listeners can check out all of my offerings and resources on my website, npmindfulcoach.com. Awesome. I will put the link in the show notes. And thank you so much, Nina, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or you can visit https colon slash slash nishangarg.me N-I-S-H-A-N-T-G-A-R-G dot me. You can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life. You are not alone in this journey. We all struggle in life. There is no shame in talking about it. I go through my highs and lows. I get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life. You can also do this. You got this. Don't judge yourself. You are doing the best you can. And thank you so much again. Thank you.